This is episode 28 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Welcome to episode 28 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today, I have John Kepler on the show, and John is an absolute machine. John has been investing since the age of 22. He achieved financial independence on his second property at the age of 25. He now lives in a 10,000 square foot mansion in St. Thomas, Ontario, where he enjoys financial independence and the ability to choose every day as he pleases. Uh, John started from humble beginnings. He worked at uh, Wendy's restaurant and decided that he wanted something more out of life. And uh, he decided to go down the route of learning about real estate. He's now managed to acquire 66 units of residential and commercial real estate, primarily in Owen Sound, Ontario. John has done something that's a very creative approach to acquiring property, and that's called vendor take-back mortgages. This is where John approaches a seller and asks them to hold financing on the property that he's buying from them. So in this episode, he's going to talk all about how he does that and how he's used that strategy to create cash-on-cash returns for himself as high as 40%. Yes, that's right, 40% return on the cash he had invested in a deal. So this is an incredible story. And John has been able to do something spectacular. And he did it all himself. He started from scratch. He didn't have a formal education in this. Uh, He just put in the hustle, put in the effort, and he made it happen. He's a really inspiring guy. He always wears a suit anytime I see him. And uh, you're really going to enjoy this uh, interview. So without further ado, here is episode 28 with John Kepler. Hello and welcome to the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. I have John Kepler. Kepler, hello. Kepler on the show. Sorry, I should always just ask uh, (laughs) or let you say it. That's okay. Um, John, thanks for making the drive up to to be on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. You're a very interesting character because I've been seeing you on social media and then we finally got to meet uh, maybe a couple of months ago and then you came to the meetup a couple of weeks ago or last week. And you've got yourself a lot of properties. <laughs> I do. Yes. Yes. It's, uh, it's a lot to keep track of. Yeah. So I, I wanted to uh, have you on to tell your story because I have absolutely no idea how you got there. So I know that you started in Owen Sound, Ontario. Is that correct? I did. Yes. Yeah. So Owen Sound, Ontario, which is uh, an area that I'm very fond of uh, nearby to Sable Beach and lots of ATV trails. It's a nice natural area. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, lots of fun to be had up there. So, uh, John, if you wouldn't mind, um, would you just uh, kind of walk me through how you got into real estate and, and where you're at right now? I know it's uh, it's probably a little bit of an elevator pitch that you've been uh, you've given before. Fair enough. Uh, no, it's it's uh, it's been an interesting journey, and I I enjoy sharing the process. Yeah. Uh, I went to high school in Owen Sound, and like many people who turn 18, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I had a job at Wendy's, and what I knew was that I wanted to quit my job at Wendy's. So I uh, started a few businesses and was successful for a few years, but I learned very quickly that I wanted to do real estate. So the, uh, the challenge was in that I had no money, and I wished to start, and that I had to kind of put in some work ahead of time to get myself where I wanted to go to, to get my down payment together to get it, you know, to get ready to buy my first property. Mm. So I just spent years listening to uh, podcasts at the time. Um, I don't know if anybody used the term podcast, but there were 
conference calls, telephone-based conference calls that would get recorded and uploaded to this one website in particular that's no longer around. And I would just consume all the free content. They'd sell you a course at the end for $4.99 or $9.99, and I wouldn't buy it. I would just, uh, just take the, take free, the free stuff. Exactly. So um, I bought my first house, uh, no money down, basically pulled some money off credit lines, credit cards. And then a few years later, my girlfriend and I were able to put together $30,000 in cash, and we bought our first mixed-use property. So it had apartments above, six apartments in a store. And we only had $30,000. So that first apartment building deal was done with a vendor take back in second position. The vendor didn't know me before we met to discuss the deal, but he was comfortable enough to loan us $90,000 anyway. Yeah. So just just for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, vendor take back mortgage, can you just explain what that was and, and, and how you even came up with the idea to do it? Of course. So a vendor take back mortgage is a loan from the vendor. So they are selling you a property while simultaneously loaning you some or all of the money to buy it. So in this case, it was about 25% of the deal. So in the motive to do that would be to lower the amount of cash you need to come up. Come exactly. Up with. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So you got a first mortgage from a bank maybe or something along those lines. Yes. Okay. And then you got your private private mortgage behind that. Uh, did you have to come in with some cash still on that deal? So on that one, we did have $30,000. Yes. Oh, 30, yeah, uh, okay. I, I, I enjoy talking about vendor take backs. We'll see if our conversation goes that way and we end up talking I would about love them it. more. <laughs> um, at the end of the day, my strategy on that deal was simply to approach and say, I have $30,000, but I think I'm your best deal. And so the conversation started from there, right? I was pretty upfront yeah. about what we had to put down. And if 120 was required, then I was out. So that's how the negotiation began. Gotcha. So it was just, this is what, this is what I got. I'd like to buy your property. Are you going to work with me? Exactly. Is that how you phrased it? More that's or less? precisely how I phrased that one. Yes. Really? I okay. tailor it depending on what I think the seller's motivations are and where they are in their okay. lives and what they value. They seem like like you've got a fairly good grasp on negotiations so we're definitely going to have to dig into that so okay keep going so that was your second your second property yes after okay. the house i lived in that was our second property yeah. um with that first house that i bought it was a four-bedroom house i bought it when i was 22 years old and okay. i was excited to buy a place that had more square feet than any of my friends houses i, I thought that'd be a fun thing to do at the time mm -hmm. and it wasn't worthwhile i I bought it. It was too big for me. It cost more than I thought. And so I ended up house hacking. I, I know that's another term that uh, perhaps some of your other guests have used, but yeah, absolutely. I rented out rooms to roommates. And I knew before I bought the house that I should have bought a side-by-side -side duplex or something like that, where you live in one half, or maybe you live in the second floor when rent yeah. out the first floor. But I didn't want to. I wanted to buy a big house. And so I had to basically undo uh, my decision and kind of get the financials to where they would be as if I had made the right decision and bought a duplex. So, yeah, well, I mean, if you had roommates and it worked out the same or like, were you in a situation where you weren't paying to live? Like it was free living? It was nearly, nearly. It covered nearly? the whole mortgage plus a little more than that. So I paid, you know, some taxes and utilities, but it was, it was minimal. How sweet is that? It's, it's great. And it wasn't planned ahead of time, right? Yeah. I, I got myself into a position where I thought, no, I need to do this. How can I, how can I make this wrong financial situation a good financial situation? Yeah. So you were 22 when you bought the first one or the... The house, yes. Okay, so the, the first house, 22. And how many years later was it for your first uh, mixed use? Three well, years. Three years later after that. So you're 25 when you bought the, the mixed use. Yeah. How, how old are you now? I'm 34. Just turned 34. You look younger. 
I, I, I appreciate that. Thank I you. Thought, I would have thought you're younger than me. Thank you. <laughs> I had a tenant tell me I was 40 a few weeks uh, ago. No, I don't. <laughs> don't listen to any of that. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, continue on the journey. So the second one was was at uh, age 25, and then what, where did you go from there? So from there, I I wanted to keep buying, and it's interesting how. I mean, life is rather serendipitous. We don't always know where we're going to end up. And some of our plans require adjustment based on the market and based on what we encounter. So I was very excited to buy this multi-unit building that was seven units. And I thought, this is going to be my floor. This is already a three-story building. It's somewhat imposing looking. I'm just going to buy huge ones now. And that wasn't the right answer. I, I talked to my realtor and about a year later, I found someone who had some properties for sale. And again, I, I perhaps was a little more arrogant than I should have been. I wanted a big deal and he was selling duplexes and triplexes. So I said, you know, I'll only work with you if you sell me two because I didn't want to buy a duplex after buying my seven unit. I thought okay. maybe buying a duplex wasn't okay, which is ridiculous. And so I ended up buying a triplex and a duplex from him together. So five units after the seven were they one one parcel or on one parcel or separate locations? No, separate parcels, relatively yeah. close, about two blocks away from each other. Okay. And where was the money coming for from for down payments at this point in time? So for that one, it's likely it's likely that I refinance my house again, plus some okay. savings. I have to check the dates on some of this. Uh, yeah. But that was also a vendor take back. I proposed thirty thousand uh, dollars. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted as a loan from the vendor. Mm-hmm. And he was a sophisticated investor who was retiring. And he said, no, take 50. So I actually got more than I initially asked for. So again, I, I, I'm sure we put some down into that deal, but it wasn't a huge amount. Yeah, and that's that's the critical part if you're if you're buying properties because you can't you can't win at this game if you're always putting down full 20% down payments on every single deal, unless you have a job that's paying you, you know, millions a year and you're just saving up down payment after down payment. Exactly. Uh, eventually, you're going to need to get creative. And vendor takebacks, I don't know that I've had anyone on that's done a lot of them. I mean, I think that it's a part of a lot of investors' toolkits, but it doesn't get talked about enough as as far as its importance because people talk about joint ventures all the time, mm-hmm. but they don't talk about creative financing with, with uh, you know, vendor takebacks and second mortgages and, and, you know, leveraging your existing portfolio quite as much. Exactly. Yeah. I would say that VTBs are less prevalent or less talked about because you'll never get one going unless you take the first step. Right. I find a lot of people are attracted to JVs because they have to be. They are up against that financing wall where they've right. gone to the bank and they've the bank has told them that there's a maximum number of mortgages and they've believed that that position from the bank. And so doing a JV is the way to continue even when uh, when you can't get more mortgages. At the end of the day, though, a VTB is a perfectly legitimate alternative. It mm-hmm. can be more beneficial. Um, I haven't done a JV deal because I prefer vendor takebacks, and I've been able to get them periodically as I've continued asking. But a vendor is never going to ask you if you want a vendor take back, so you have to be assertive. Yeah. So let's kind of role play. I know we're only partway into your story, and we'll pick up where we left off. But um, when you're going into a situation... And this was all in Owen Sound, I, I take it? It was, yes. Okay, so Owen Sound, what did the market have to be like for that to work? So the market was more slow than a lot of Ontario markets are today, but I'm still continuing to do it. Um, I, I've had VTBs in relatively recent memory. So it, it just because the market moves a little quicker doesn't mean 
that yeah. you can't arrange one, right? It's just a little more competitive. It's it's just easier when there are less other options for the seller. Exactly. So, and okay. frankly, if you think I I you know one VTB we did approximately it was almost two years ago now. Mm-hmm. There were other people sniffing around. Uh, we encountered other agents at showings, and it was going to sell. But yeah. before other offers came in, I put together something, including a VTB, that worked for the seller. So sellers just want to get what they need out of the deal. They're just, you know, yeah. if, if you give them the power to say yes and they're comfortable saying yes, you're in. So that vendor probably didn't have to do a VTB deal, but I gave him a good offer. I, I gave him the price that he wanted and made yeah. it all make sense, even with competition potentially. Well, and the interesting thing there is if you work your numbers out, and I don't know what interest rate you're writing the vendor take back mortgage at, but if you work the numbers out and and you you no longer need to go get a third party second mortgage from someone else, or you don't have to get other expensive financing, sometimes you can afford to pay more and you're in the exact same position. So exactly. it's a win-win, right? The seller gets more, they get what they wanted. And assuming they didn't need the cash right away, maybe they're happy taking a, you know, a, a, a small return on the monthly interest payments that you give them. Well, that's the thing. Um, to answer your question about interest rate, I pay all over the map. It depends on the style of deal that we're putting together. Yeah. So in certain situations, if I'm reaching and I'm working hard to get a seller, absolutely the top dollar, I'll just explain to them that their profit is in the property purchase price. It's not really in the interest rate. So then I give them an interest rate that's perhaps close to the rate of inflation, something very, very low. So two or 3%. Is that that your comfort zone? That's what I've done. Yes. I've I've now heard my, some of my colleagues ask for 0%. I've never asked for 0%. I I usually throw them something, but uh, yeah, it depends on whether or not what I do is I look at the fundamentals of what we're doing and decide how similar it is to, to what goes on in the open market in terms of mortgages. So you're trying to get bank rates basically. Yeah, more or less, more or less. Okay, so let's just work out some quick math here because typical secondary financing, you could be anywhere from 8% if you're doing really well plus fees to 12%, 13%. Exactly. So it, let's just say hypothetically you're saving 8%, yeah. um, which I think is a, a conservative estimate. At 8%, what's uh, a vendor take back you've done recently? Like how much dollar wise was it? Uh, I did a $60,000 one so, for for 3.5%. So 60000 So let's say you were saving uh, 8% over what you would have paid for alternative financing on something else. Yeah. Uh, so at 60000 that's $4,800 a year you're saving. Exactly. On, on that. So if you know, if they're willing to give a VTB for three or four or even five years, now all of a sudden you can start paying them maybe fifteen, twenty thousand dollars more than than you would have otherwise. That's the thing. That's exactly right. Yeah. So yeah. that's a very interesting concept. And I think I think people need to learn more about this because it is a it is a very valuable tool. Um I had Adam Martin on. Yes. And yes. he talked about his his VTB. Now, he actually offered the seller more than even market value. Yeah, I've talked to Adam at length about that deal. Yeah. That was a spectacular deal. Very well played. But yeah. he, he checked all the boxes. He yeah. found the right deal, found the right seller, and made mm-hmm. the right offer for that seller. And again, I don't know uh, if Adam's mentioned that on your podcast or not, but yeah. there were a lot of other small things about his deal other people might have considered them hiccups or little issues. And Adam just relentlessly checked the boxes, right? He worked so hard to solve all the problems to deal with all objections. Yeah. And if you just satisfy somebody, they say yes. 
Well, and, and the most important part of that was he got his name on a property at the right time. Now the market's gone crazy. Exactly. And, and so a deal, I think he had, what, like five to $10,000 of his own money into that deal. Yeah. And it's gone up in value, I think he said over a hundred grand. And then he's also house hacking it to the point where I don't think he's paying anything to live. Exactly. So he's got a free place to live and, you know, a hundred K say return on something he's got 10 grand into. Yeah. Uh, that's the power of getting your, your name on real estate now rather than next year or the year after. Oh, precisely. If, if you had to save up that down payment. Right? Yeah. Can, and he would have been in a great position if there wasn't immediate appreciation. So I thought of, right? Right. I, I found that as well with my deals. I make, mm. I make deals hoping for appreciation of no worse than zero and you end up getting quite a bit of it over time. Um, yeah. We could have a separate conversation about our market and where it's been and where it's going, but ultimately the appreciation is just the additional thing. It's just even more, uh, you know, incentive to, to get it done. Absolutely. Well, I like to factor, I don't care what the market did or is doing. I like to figure two to three percent on appreciation because that's inflation that's just how much our dollar is going down in value i know that real estate's going up faster than than uh, the inflation rate exactly right now who knows if that's forever uh it's gonna there's gonna be a cycle there but uh, over time how could it do worse than that i mean we're you know our ontario where we are ontario canada I mean, people, we're like the envy of the world as far as real estate investing goes here. Everybody wants this real estate. We are. Yeah. It's a stable society. I I purposefully tried not to have too strong an opinion on the matter mm -hmm. when I was uh, a newer investor, not a new investor, but maybe my first five or six years in the market. I thought, mm -hmm. especially when I was still in my 20s, I thought mm -hmm. maybe I'm not old enough to get this right. Uh, some of my older friends in their 60s and 70s were telling me about how things used to be. Mm -hmm. I had two particularly smart, wealthy friends tell me that I should be working hard to hedge against major interest rate increases about four years ago, and things have been absolutely fine ever since. Uh, no issues yeah. whatsoever. So yes, I'm starting to get uh, stronger and stronger positions about uh, the ongoing appreciation in our market. I didn't want to be too aggressive at first, but you got to yeah. look at the facts. Um, you, you can't argue with how things are going. Right. And I think that it's great. It's gravy. And I love it. It's, you know, I'm still going to, I'm still going to expect it, but I'm not going to put a deal together that, that absolutely requires it. Exactly. Because if, because if you get into that, then you could get yourself into trouble. And I think that as long as you can still put a deal together where you're at least cash positive, even if it's not a huge cash flow, um, our rents are on their way up. They're still trailing behind where the housing prices have gone. So even if the housing prices stagnate, uh, rents are still going to have to continue to go up to just meet them. Precisely. Because uh, so many markets have lost their cash flow. London sort of lost its cash flow because everything got so expensive, it became a lot harder. Now, not to say you can't find a deal, uh, but it's definitely more difficult. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm still looking at deals all the time where it, it's got to make sense cash wise. But then, of course, man, the gravy the gravy is the appreciation. And sometimes that's the the whole uh, the whole package there. Um, I actually bought a property. I might have told this one before, but March 2017, I closed on a property. I uh, did some creative financing to put no money in. And a year later, so I bought it for 600 as a student rental in a good spot, downtown London. And uh, a year later, I refinanced it on a $775,000 value. I managed to pull out everything but the t but twenty grand of the uh, original down payment, which I borrowed. So I still have that borrowed. I have no money in, and this property has gone up in value 200 grand 
uh, nearly 200 grand in, in a year and a half. That's excellent. See, but that's been happening a lot yeah. lately, right? And that's the thing. Um, again, we don't want to be too aggressive. We want to yeah. maintain our fundamentals in terms of our expectations for cash flow and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing I've been saying a little more lately, and I do get some resistance on this, and that's okay. Uh, when you get started in the business, maybe you have some goals. People talk about their why, why they're in the business. They want to yeah. spend more time with their family. They want to travel. And it's important for people to have cash flow to do those things, perhaps to replace a job. But at the end of the day, we are investors. We're trying to to get a return. Much of the return does come from appreciation. And at some point, if you get to a spot where you don't need more cash in your pocket every month, mm-hmm. you do start to pay more and more attention to that appreciation because oh, that, that's the big adjustment to your net worth statement. That's the it's a big part of the the growth overall in your path forward. It's the biggest thing for yeah. net worth. That's that's the biggest thing. Cash flow is not going to do it because you're going to get taxed on your cash flow. You're not taxed on your property going up in value, not until you sell it. Exactly. So so absolutely, the appreciation is what I'm I'm in it for in a way. I mean, of course, I want the cash flow because you know, like you said, the why. You know, wanting the freedom. Uh, you know, the ability to do whatever with my time. But uh, but uh, appreciation is the thing that uh, I've been looking at lately and getting really excited about. It's uh, it's it's been massive, especially for the deals I look back and I did with none of my own money. And I'm looking like, look how much money that made by just borrowing other people's money. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good feeling. Yeah, <laughs> especially if you can add small renovations or positioning. Yeah, I don't do a lot of commercial real estate. Uh, yeah. I have some mixed use buildings, as I said. Some of the mixed use, especially, we buy them for the apartment rents. Maybe there's uh, no one in the commercial space, but the building still works. And then you lease up your commercial spaces and you spike the value quite quickly. Yeah. So there are other little changes you can make, just just kind of fixing the balance sheet, getting things where they're supposed to be, and then uh, and then you have instant appreciation. Absolutely, the the forced appreciation, right? Just putting yeah. putting tenants in, doing minor renos, um, you force the appreciation up really quickly. So just getting back to the vendor take back um, conversation, when you do go in, uh, you propose, you know, three percent. I'm I'm the seller. What the hell is this? What do you mean vendor take back? Do you ever get that response? Like people don't even know what you mean. I have had that before. Um, you know, in a certain sense, if you're explaining, you're losing. So you want to very, very quickly have the seller understand what your offer is, understand why yeah. you're making that offer. So again, as I said in that first vendor take back deal that I did, I said, look, here's the cash I have. Um, at other times when I wasn't truly restricted by cash, but I wanted a vendor take back, I would say, here's the cash I have available, or here's what I'm looking to put in this deal. And this vendor take back is the slice that I'd, yeah. I'd like you to take back. Um, I also just asked them what they're going to do with the money. So on yeah. one deal in particular, they uh, I got a sizable VTB first because they had no plans for the money. They were retiring. They wanted to dispose of the building. It didn't... I didn't fully grasp why they wanted to get rid of it. it seemed to me that it would be in their best interest to hold it but they didn't believe in property management and they really just wanted to be finished so ultimately in that situation i just said what are you gonna do with the money they said we have no idea but we're risk averse so i just structured a deal that paid them a fair return compared to the other options they were considering and that was that right and they believed in the building they'd owned it for decades so the idea that the the loan was secured against an asset they were already familiar with was comforting for them can you pitch me as if I were them right now? What would you say? Those people in particular? Yeah, just pretend I'm them. Whatever yeah. their name was. Uh, I would just say, um, 
this will be a, a sizable sale for you. I, I guess this is the majority of your portfolio. What are you going to do with the money? You're going to go on vacation for, for 10 years? I have no idea what I'm going to do with the no money. No idea? Okay, well, um, I can put together something that uh, allows you to earn a bit of a return. What I could do is I obviously need to make something on this deal, so I'm going to go in and manage this building and try to make sure it continues to do well. Uh, but I'm willing to pay you an investment return similar to what you would get out in the market. Um, an investment return on what? You're you're buying the building from me. Well, to go from there, uh, I lucked out somewhat. Their son was a financial advisor. <laughs> okay. So at that point, I sent them back to their son, and I, it, it, you, you got to remain credible, right? Right. So when there is someone in the deal who's maybe looking around and has a a role in passing or failing, what takes mm-hmm. place. It's better to get them on side as yeah. fast as you can, right? So or get them in the room. Yes. So yeah. at that point, I I didn't speak much more. I said, "Go talk to your yeah. son or son-in-law." Okay. So when they wanted to know what a vendor take back was, or did they want to know, or they already knew? I explained it briefly. Yeah. They also had a, a realtor representing them who was very familiar. Yeah. So he had commercial experience. He did some of the explaining. Oh, okay. As well. So that that helps. And I was going to ask, like, do you have the realtor there? Because it's pretty rare. I don't know what your experience has been, but like my experience of actually getting the seller in the room so you can negotiate direct is almost a never happen kind of thing unless you force it. Yeah. yeah. If the yes, yeah, so if there's a realtor in place, that's difficult for sure. Yeah. So are you buying these off market? Are these people you've you've approached? Or, or it's a mix of all of the above. In one case, yeah. um, the realtor was the son of the vendor. In another case, the realtor was just formerly a large commercial player in town, so he was very mm-hmm. sophisticated. Uh, left him to articulate half yeah. of it. Um, in other cases, it's been only my realtor. So, um, yet another case, uh, the realtor that I was using at the time had formerly represented the seller. So there yeah. was a lean on that relationship, right? That relationship was more long-term than my relationship with that realtor. So that, again, that was a, situ- a situation yeah. where that seller trusted the realtor and I was able to inform the realtor what I needed and the realtor took it back to them. That's nice. Yeah, if you've got a realtor, I know that they a lot of them don't like this, but one realtor that'll represent both of you because then they're super motivated. They can double end the deal, get double the commission. Exactly. Or work it out and just get the deal done. But either yeah. way, um, then they just try and work for both of you and you say, Hey, this is what I want to do. They, they get to know you. They, they see that you're a good, honest guy. You just want to get a deal done. And, um, that's a real, real type of win. It feels like that's the type of deal that maybe is a little easier to do in a smaller town where everybody is kind of, I would say so. Everyone knows everyone and you're, you know, how many degrees of separation from anyone in that town. Exactly. Uh, It's yeah, it's more likely that you'll find people who already have connections. In one deal, I found out years later that the realtor involved actually helped me with the interest rate. I didn't know. I just I just made some requests and I got my yeses and Mm -hmm. I moved on. But then I found out after that the the vendor actually pushed back and the realtor handled it. And I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, because they just they want to solve the problem, right? Realtors really do want to solve problems when they're when they're closing deals, right? They want that deal to close. So it's um, I know everyone talks about off-market deals, but if you've got a really competent realtor working with you, they can make it happen. That's the thing. Yeah. yeah. So you just got to, you got to find that. Um, but then also be creative. You can still, even with two realtors, you can still throw a VTB into your offer and see what happens. One thing that I, I haven't done that I might do more in the future is a lot of people propose two offers as well. So they will propose a cash offer um, mm-hmm. and then they will propose perhaps something with a better purchase price that includes yeah. a VTB and give them sort of an A versus B option. So I know a guy that's a realtor that goes in and meets with clients and he gives them three options. He says, I can list your house right now for this price and it'll probably sell in 90 days. You know, you're closing this like he'll give them, he'll lay it out. I can pay you this much and it closes in, you know, a month or I can pay you this much and we'll close in two weeks. 
and he'll basically just give them the different options, different price points. But I, I think that that has a psychological effect on people where they feel like they really should pick one of the options. It does. It so does. as a realtor, it might just work out in him getting a listing or he's he's getting a property. Yes. Unless it's somebody who's really a stick in the mud on their price and they had it in their head before he met with them and and all, all that kind of thing. But uh, there's a bit of game theory that takes place there as well. So I, I haven't done the A versus B thing. Never mind three options, you know, A versus B versus C. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've read that if you are in a scenario where you are making three different offers, there's also some... Um, incentive or some likelihood that uh they might go with the middle of the road offer so often if you're pitching a retail product for example you might have the cheap one the cheap option that nobody wants the expensive option which nobody wants to pay for and then the middle option which is just right i love that middle option you're absolutely right so i went to business school and i remember remember talking about this and i've also done a fair bit of reading where this has come up um i'm curious do you have a a specific book that you've read or have you studied negotiation kind of independently or in some sort of course I haven't taken a course officially. I, I read as much as I can. Um, I'm always logging into my Audible account and trying to, to yeah. keep up with. The great thing about Audible is you, you put the money up front, right? So you buy the credits and then you have to use them. You so, got to use them. Yeah. So I'm always logging into Audible, just trying to consume as much as I can to keep up with my credits. Give me a name. I got like three credits to use. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, let me think of a good one right now. Uh, Negotiation Genius. Okay. Um, some of these are going to be more what I'm reading right now, um, than, than the best books I've ever read, but I do have one spectacular one that you, you actually yeah. should read and I'm not all the way through it yet. Um, there is a book by Ryan holiday. I may not get the exact oh, is title. Is that the one that, on stoicism? No, the no he's had, he has a couple way. now. Yeah. This is the one about Peter Thiel. It's called conspiracy or some variation of the, oh, yeah? the word conspiracy. So it's about, uh, Peter Thiel's takedown of Gawker. Okay. But it's not so much about negotiation as it is about covertly executing a very long-term plan with absolute discipline. Okay. It's, uh, it, it, it bends your mind a little bit. It's I'm interested. Okay. So Ryan Holiday, what's it called? Um, Conspiracy. Conspiracy. Okay. If that's not the exact title though, Ryan Holiday and Conspiracy yeah, I'll and, find and Peter Thiel bring it right up. Yeah. I've got, uh, you know what? Since since it came up and I've never done this on the podcast before, I am just going to open up my Audible account right now. Excellent. Let's let's talk about some common titles here. Sure. Uh, real estate investors' number one response to their favorite book is, "Oh, that's got to be Rich Dad Poor Dad." <laughs> of course. Yeah, I'm just listening to it uh, on Audible now. I ha- I had read it in 2012, and man, it's good. Yeah, it's. Uh, I read it when I was 19. It helped form yeah. form the plan for what I wanted to do. Even before awesome. I knew real estate. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a perfect age. And you got started so young, right? You said 20, 21? 22 is 22. when I finally yeah. got the house. Yeah. Yeah. I've got, uh, so a book, I'm trying to think of what I've, I've read lately or listened to. Uh, Deep Work, Cal Newport, uh, Miracle Equation by Hal Elrod, 10X Rule, Grant Cardone. Yeah. Miracle Morning, Hal Elrod. Real Estate Rehab Investing Bible by Paula Sajan. If, uh, if you're interested in, in flipping and, and such, that's uh, that's a good one. I, I listened to that. I'll say red. I right, listened right. to that uh, a couple of years ago. And mm. uh, just like it's more kind of U.S. geared. So our friends in the U.S. will probably enjoy that. But uh, Stefan Arnio, self-made. Oh, so really good like life books. Yep. Psycho Cybernetics. Oh, okay. I've heard, heard of that, that one? one. I've heard of it. I have not definitely read it. recommend um, anything on the law of attraction ultimately, but there's definitely some, some uh, good ones. Um, I'll try and find some names here. There's one called influence uh, by Robert uh, Caldini. Okay. 
another like if you're in a negotiation kind of uh space you know there there book books of course have different purposes in your life and it's so interesting to see how different people can be affected by the same book so i'm just scrolling through my list here um Try not to swear on your podcast, but uh, it's okay. Why, if, uh, swearing on this podcast, I, I, I make make sure that it's explicit. Well, okay, uh, <laughs> we can bleep it as necessary and make sure make sure it's YouTube uh, friendly. But the subtle yeah. art of not giving a f- by Mark Manson. I have that is, one on here too. Yeah. A lot of people do, right? Yeah. But uh, but people take different things away from that book. So yeah. I actually found that it was most beneficial for me to read the first third of it. And then I stopped purposefully. Um, yeah. It was a little reminder that I needed at a certain point in my life. Maybe in three mm-hmm. years, I'll go back to it. But uh, that book kind of gave me what I needed. And then I moved along. Yeah. Other people read it all the way through and get right into it. Right. But I just, I just needed it for a, a little reminder. I um, feel that way, actually, not to cut you off. I feel that way about Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. Okay. Yeah. I haven't read all the way through that one either. Because the first third of it is the, the best part. Everything else after that feels almost redundant, but I, I, I shouldn't say that because I didn't get the rest of the way through it. I'm like, eh, <laughs> well, it's, it it's losing redundant. its effect. It feels like I've got what I needed here. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's so so many in here. I have, I have a few on conspiracy as well. I do like to, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. I like to go down some rabbit holes here and there as well. Of course. Um, but I think, you know, that just comes into like my nature to question things. So um, yeah, I'm always educating myself. Uh, a four hour work week is another one we didn't mention. Like that one inspired me so much to like, just want to change my life and like realize there are other ways of thinking outside the box. Right. But yeah. if we don't question things, we never get outside the box. We stay in it our whole lives. Right. Yeah. So my parents did it. So many people I know, you know, do it right. And you know, you guys know those people too, right? You guys are living well outside the box. I mean, you, you have we your are. own company, you've got your real estate portfolio. You yeah. guys don't work day jobs, correct? No. No. no, Alicia's a licensed realtor. I do not have a license. Yeah. But uh, again, no, no obligation to put in the time outside of our yeah. investments and what we choose to do. What you choose to do. That's the most critical part, right? That's, that's yeah. where you're winning, right? If, if you wake up in the morning and you get to choose what to do today, exactly. you're winning. In my opinion, that's, uh, that's just where I'm at. For sure. So, anyways, we did talk a bunch about VTBs. Um, as far as negotiation, you had mentioned a book there. We took your portfolio up until the duplex and the triplex that you bought together. Yes, we did. Yes. Did you skin your knee at that point or or things continue to go smoothly? Why don't you... No, I kept moving. I um, continued refinancing, um, bought my fifth property traditionally with uh, no vendor take back, pulled money out of other properties okay. and, uh, and that's how that one worked. And then uh, just kept going from there. Did 10 VTBs in total. Um, okay. And, uh, so now we have, uh, actually right now, technically 18 properties, but uh, 15 multifamily, 15 multifamily properties. Yeah. How many units? 66. So 15, 66. 15 multifamily, uh, the house I used to live in that I rent out, uh, the house, uh, other house I used to live in that I must sell. And then the house that I, uh, actually live in now. The house you live in now is epic. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> so so John uh, moved from Owen Sound to St. Thomas. Yes. And St. Thomas is a place where your dollar can go fairly far, although it's it's really picking up. It uh, is. But you managed to get your hands on a, quite a large house. Why don't you tell us a bit about that house? We did. I, you know, for the last couple of years, I've been looking around Ontario for anything I could find that was extremely under replacement costs. So basically, spectacular house at a somewhat stomachable price. Um, so a year or two ago, I found one in Windsor that uh, didn't quite meet what we were looking for. And so I just came across this one. Um, it had been for sale for quite some time. Um, I think they listed it uh, a little aggressively at the beginning. 
And so interest was low when I came knocking. And so I was able to get, uh, you know, a deal I could live with on that property. And it's, uh, it's, it's our dream home, at least for the foreseeable future. It's 10,000 square feet. It's, uh, most of what we wanted. You must not only have a cleaning lady or man, but a cleaning yes. crew. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of people doing a lot of things at this house. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, a lot of small, smaller town investors, uh, who acquire a portfolio like yours usually have a cash flow tail to go with it. Um, what have you seen from your properties on in cash flow? You can feel free to give as much or as little information as you want here. Um, sure. but tell me a little bit about the cash flow situation in your portfolio. So perhaps it's best to tie this to cap rate if that's okay. where you're, where you're sure. going or I understand things change as you continue to hold a property. But, uh, at the beginning years ago, I, we were buying 10 and 11 caps. And so there's been certainly a cap rate compression all across Ontario, less so in Owen sound, but at the end of the day, uh, even with a lot of financing, even with a vendor take back, and even with some private secondary financing in certain circumstances, the buildings mm. still do cash flow. So that's uh, that's exceptional. What did you buy your uh, your second building for? Um, the uh, multifamily, yeah, the, the multifamily the, uh, mixed use. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we bought it for three hundred sixty thousand dollars. So at a three hundred sixty thousand dollar purchase price, if you're uh, say a 11 cap 10 cap it well, i think it was a 10 and a half or 11 yeah i think the yeah. the net income was almost forty thousand. yeah so so that works out so you just multiply point point one zero five or yeah point one zero five for ten and a half percent times that purchase price so that's thirty seven thousand eight hundred in uh in net operating income before yeah. your mortgage exactly now obviously your mortgage is going to be a significant payment and then you've got your vendor take back which was a, a significant payment what were you getting on that building do you remember after all those payments did you still have cash flow i don't remember precisely um yeah. but yeah i think we did it you know i certainly don't want to embellish but i feel like we might have had a thousand dollars a month um shortly after that i remember i made a bit of a commitment to myself to get a thousand dollars a month in cash flow per deal i didn't want to work so hard to pull something together just to to break even month to month after closing. Yeah. So I feel like it was close. Um, but beyond that, you still have regular rent increases. You have turnover. The commercial uh, tenant at that building mm -hmm. also had an automatic uh, escalation built into the lease, which I found very beneficial now since I've been <laughs> in, in it for nine years. It's really started to add up. Commercial, yeah, commercial real estate's great for that because all the rules that protect residential tenants don't don't protect commercial tenants, right? You can do so much more. Exactly. Um, yeah. You just got to charge tax on the rent, which is kind of, Less fun, but uh, yes, but well, as long as the commercial tenant yeah. understands that and they have it explained up front, right? Yeah, yeah, and then you just got to remit it yourself. So it's one extra yeah. step, but it's uh, it's okay. It's crazy to me that you could own a property that you put how much thirty thirty thousand yeah. so thirty thousand, and you're getting a thousand a month in cash flow. Let's just say hypothetically, so a thirty thousand dollar purchase, thousand a month in cash flow is twelve thousand on the year. What is that just on cash flow? Your you're over 33%. You're like 30, 35%, 36%. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so let's see. Once you add in appreciation, it goes to the moon. Hey guys, it's Andrew, and I just wanted to take a moment to pause this episode and ask you for one very small favor, and that's if you haven't already, could you please just take a moment to rate and review this podcast? It'll really help other people to find it as well. And also, if you're on YouTube, please just take a moment and smash in the like and subscribe buttons and click that notification bell so that you can stay current on all the new episodes. Thanks so much, and let's get back to the episode. So for 12,000 over, let's divided by 30 40% just on your on your cash. Yes. Your cash on cash return. 
40 percent exactly. who gets that no one in this world gets 40 percent well cash. that's the thing the, the people who say it's not possible are the people who are making reference to large funds right yeah and uh, mutual funds in many cases um who don't even have the same uh the same tools available to them as hedge funds or private equity funds or yeah. other sophisticated types of investments so yeah, yeah once you're you're shockingly enormous and you're managing billions of dollars uh you won't get a 40 percent annual return but there's much more you can do at a smaller scale oh absolutely they're creative deals right creative yeah. your vendor take back was the it was a critical element there you didn't have to put down 25 percent or 35 percent. you put down i don't know what 30 worked out to to be there but under 10 exactly yeah it was less than 10 percent um, okay, so let's actually work out the numbers in full because you had forty percent on your cash, but you you have uh, more elsewhere. So, do you remember approximately what your first mortgage was value wise? Give me a second. Well, value wise was sixty five percent. Yes, so sixty five percent of three sixty is exactly what it was. So purchase price was three sixty, and then you had mortgage of sixty five percent. Do you remember what bank did that? That was the B lender. That was Home Trust. Yeah, I was about to say because it, if it was an A lender, they wouldn't have allowed the secondary financing in behind. Right. Yeah. Um, it was an interesting time. Home Trust was just beginning to do commercial financing at that time. That's so interesting. If I was yeah. a few years faster, Home Trust wouldn't have been a candidate. Well, then you would have just had to work with regular private lenders and it gets a lot more expensive, right? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, B lender, for those who aren't familiar, uh, an A lender would be your typical bank. B lenders are a little bit of higher interest rate, usually a little smaller loan to value, but uh, you'll still get a deal done when you might not have otherwise. Mm-hmm. And uh, slightly less rules, slight, slightly lower requirements, uh, typically. Yes. Yes. Uh, and through this whole journey, I've been mm-hmm. self-employed. So some people had the benefit of a regular job with uh, employment income as they're building their portfolio. And I never did. Yeah. I was self-employed before I bought my first house. So, you know, yeah. home, home Trust was more willing to work with people in that yeah. situation, too. Okay. So you had a uh, $360,000 purchase. A 65% mortgage works out to 234000 Yep. Okay. And then what was the VTB on that one? 90,000. 90,000. So I'm just going to subtract off these others. So if we subtract off your first mortgage and your VTB, that's $36,000 down. Yep. Okay. So your down payment was uh, 36,000 now. So cash flow, we figure about a thousand. So 12,000 a year, which is just awesome, man. That sounds really nice. Okay. So principal pay down. I like to just say, uh, 3% approximately on average. It's not exact, but it's usually pretty much in the ballpark. Of course. Uh, so 3% of your, your 234,000. Now I'm not going to do anything for the vendor take back because most vendor take backs are ca- are interest only. That's true. In this one, this might be the only vendor take back I've ever taken in a second position that did have a, blend, a blended principal interest payment. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, was it still like a 25 or a 30 year? It was, uh, it might've been 20. But okay. yes, in any case, it's what gave this guy comfort, right? So he was uh, he was older and he believed in doing things the old way. And so I, you know, we threw in some principal payments to to make it work. Okay, well, I'm going to do a principal pay down on the second as well. And I'm going to do that one at 4% because uh, faster amortization is going to be a little bit more. Sure. So you're paying off that one as well at uh, 4%. So let's just see. So 90,000 at 4%. So that's 3,600 a year on that one. And mm-hmm. then you've got your property appreciation. Now, being that it's a small town, we'll probably, uh, what do you think, like 2% is a safer bet? That can be a more complicated discussion. Um, I know it's been more. It, it I has know it been has. a lot more. I didn't foresee it being that much more. Yeah. I mean, much of the appreciation there came down to the uh, the compression of cap rates, right? So I got yeah. this for you know, 10 and a half cap, almost an 11 cap, something like that. And very quickly, things were selling for eight. 
right shortly yeah. after so yeah it depends how you want to attribute it um but i mean even based you know the the rent increase guideline uh I don't know if your listeners have heard about that on other podcasts, but mm-hmm. if nobody moves, the the guideline is pretty low. But inevitably, you do turn turn units over turn and turn them over. Yeah, even you know you should be able to continue uh, going upward just based on cash flow alone at at least three percent. Even all those years yep. ago, 3%. okay, so we'll factor three percent then. Yeah. Um, okay, so so a three percent increase in so your value to start was three sixty times the three percent. So that's ten thousand eight hundred a year. So your total return is thirty three thousand. $420 in the first year. Okay. And if we calculate an ROI, return on investment there. So take that return divided by your down payment of 36 Gs, 92% return on investment in the first year. Excellent. That's you know, okay. I might not have, I, I'm familiar with these calculations. I do them regularly, but I don't think I've done that on my first deal just like that. That's you interesting. Oh, I, I haven't. This was haven't the second fully, one, though, wasn't well, it? Sorry, yeah. yes, second, yeah. second after my yeah. house. Yes, um, I don't think I've consciously thought about how it was uh, a more or less one hundred percent return after the first year on yeah. my first mixed use property. That's that's where I just I always say this. We always get into it. Like I don't understand why there are people out there who who like are against investing in real estate and, and think it's like not a good idea. I'm like you can exactly. I mean, granted, okay. So so there are some things here coming from investing in a larger city now if you can call london a larger city it's it's you know getting closer to half a million people mm-hmm. uh in its greater area versus owen sound is what like thirty thousand, forty thousand people yeah i mean that's its own discussion uh, i think the science is twenty two thousand. it's yeah. it's the single shopping uh region for the, the whole area so some you know it, it's it a acts, hub for the year it's a hub it yeah. acts like it has up to a hundred thousand based on certain metrics but yeah because people will drive in right that's the big town and the big exactly. town is to go to to owen sound do they have a big mall there uh, and a winners, oh, and winners, uh, huh? several Home Depot, yeah, se- several, Home Depot, several of those. Walmart, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there's something to be said about that. I know we say that tongue in cheek, but if you know that Home Depot is invested in it, Lowe's, like if you see these new stores opening up, they're saying that they've done the market research. They believe in those areas. They believe it's worth the infrastructure to invest in them. That definitely means something. Exactly, it does to me anyway. Oh, it does. Yeah. Th- those, I mean, uh, those companies are militant on their math. Um, frankly, they, they almost always get it right. And they have, um, mm-hmm. you know, we try to do the same thing over and over, uh, but their, their plan is even more meticulously cookie cutter. Yeah. They do exactly the same thing all over Ontario and they hit their numbers every time. So if they're, if they're mm-hmm. voting for your town, that's a good thing. Yeah. If they're expanding, I mean, you're, you're probably less likely to see Home Depot expanding these days. I don't, I know they're not doing quite as well, but, uh, Lowe's they're opening up new stores pretty regularly. So obviously they're doing something right and they're doing their market research exactly. um, on the, on the different areas. So does it give you any sense of discomfort to invest in a smaller town or in this one, because you feel like, you know, the area, you know, the, the reason uh, people are there. I always say that, like, if, if right. I know why people are there, I know whether or not they'll leave. Yeah. Well, I have no discomfort at all, but it's because I'm aware of some of the downsides. So it's certainly not identical to investing in the GTA. Um, You have lower quality, um, your tenants require more management. You have lower quality buildings. Mm -hmm. Um, Your tenants cash flow may be a little less predictable. So um, the chance that your tenant will face unemployment or face some other challenges down the road is statistically higher. But Again, you're getting buildings at a higher cap. Um, there's certainly a number of things that work in your favor. So as soon as I was able to get experienced enough to get comfortable with the risk, it was a no-brainer for me. Yeah. 
Well, it sounds like you didn't waste any time. No, no. <laughs> I uh, well, fortunately, before I was able to buy uh, to buy that first mixed use property, I spent you know a couple of years wishing I could, trying to you know, and so uh, so I was pretty confident in my numbers when I finally got that deal done, and it worked exactly as it was supposed to. That's awesome. Uh, what's you know you mentioned you you started with Rich Dad Poor Dad way back when. Did you have a goal here? Like, was it financial independence? Like, what did you set off trying to do back when you were working at Wendy's at the age of what, 20? Right. Well, I yeah. got my job at Wendy's at 16. Okay. Um, began to hate it right away. Yeah. And especially at that age, as you proceed through the grades in high school and everyone starts to get their college plans together, the pain got worse. I I didn't want to go to college. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I just really hated my day-to-day life. So I was clawing. I was desperate to get out of the job any way I could. Um, I ultimately uh, started a business where I was able to quit when I was 19 and had a brief level of success there. Had to mm-hmm. pivot significantly from the time I, I was 19 until I turned 22. Mm-hmm. Uh, even continued pivoting right into uh, my 25th birthday, uh, right when we bought that uh, this one property we keep talking about. Um, but it was about pain avoidance, pure and simple. I At first, I didn't know what I wanted to do, just not Wendy's. And real estate just seemed to be a, a, a credible option. Um, again, I tried some other short-lived businesses. I uh, There's one thing I don't recall, but I have a friend, two friends who, who tell me that um, they met me when I was 18. I walked into a, a business presentation meeting and said, I've been looking for a business with residual income. I guess they were shocked that an 18-year-old knew that term or that uh, any 18-year-old wanted to get paid over and over and, ha- yeah. and any anyone that age would have a realistic framework for what they wanted to achieve. So yeah. I knew what I wanted, just not how to get it. So I spent a few years yeah. figuring that out. Well, that's the rich dad, poor dad lesson, right? Get residual income, you know, fund, buy assets, invest in assets and and have them pay you forever. Yeah. But but to give us a succinct answer to the question of why I wanted to do it, it's pain avoidance. It was yeah. very unhappy with what I was doing. I had yeah. I had to get out. Okay, so you did you did some some self employed things that you weren't enjoying yeah. uh, the whole way through. When did you switch into the property management that you guys are doing now? Because you're also you're not just managing your own properties; you're managing other people's properties as well. That's true. So that was much later. I was uh, quite confident that I would never be a property manager. Um, we'd manage our own, but that's it. And then I had a friend talk to me uh, about possibly doing it. Then a year later, they called me up and said, now I want to do it. Now I'm going to commit. Mm-hmm. And then there was a referral after that. And then after that, uh, a couple of years later, um, a prominent property manager retired and said, you're the guy I trust. I'd like you to take over my contracts. I don't want to yeah. retire and screw my customers. So please take this for me. And so that's how I built. So I I didn't really ask to get into it separately, but uh, it just made sense to do. Made sense to do it. And are you at a point now where you would consider yourself financially independent? Like if you wanted to just say, okay, I'm done. I'll just manage my own properties and nothing else. Could you do that? Oh, definitely. Yeah. 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 Um, as soon as I, as we bought that mixed use property, that's when that's when it was there. Um, oh, that second one, number second number two. One. Yeah, yeah. Well, because I was <laughs> it was a long road. <laughs> I was only losing. I mean, so again, I had I had some businesses I was working on. Right, I had some consulting yeah. businesses. I was in tech for a while, and so right before I bought that mixed use building, um, I it really only cost me. I'm, I'm guessing here, but maybe eight hundred dollars a month to live, mm-hmm. and so I was making. Uh, quite a bit more than that with consulting. And then as 
we bought that mixed use yeah. property, the consulting business took a dive. And so as just as the consulting went down, that building went up. And so we talked about the cash flow I was getting there, right? Yeah. So I so that allowed me to at least be a break even. Okay. Um, I, I don't know if your listeners think about the term lean fire much or fire. We comes talk about up. it a bit because I've had I've had many people on and, you know, yeah. it seems like people in this circle, a lot of them started because they wanted to achieve fire, financial independence, retire early or right. lean fire, uh, which is just like the, the bare bones version yeah. of that. So yeah. I guess I did this without knowing all those terms or maybe yeah. those terms weren't prevalent at the time. I, I, I'm not a particular lean fire advocate. I, I think it's important to spend consciously and enjoy your life. But yeah. uh, but I suppose I hit lean fire as soon as we bought that mixed use building. And then after that, I was just trying to uh, just to boost my income further. Yeah, just to do it for. Are you still trying to grow? Like, what, what's you know, what's joy in your life now? What's the next goal? What are you, what are you trying to do now? Yeah. So, in terms of personal comforts, um, there, there isn't much more that uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty happy now in terms of what I'm doing. Um, always looking to boost the net worth statement. Always looking to uh, um, well to grow. Uh, I, I I very much value my track record. I'd like to keep it rolling. Mm. Um, it's it's hard to describe in just a few words. I yeah. think that uh, people who get satisfaction from growth don't really give it up. So I'm doing what I wish to be doing. I yeah. I, I don't think it's reasonable for me to uh, to stop trying to grow. It just it's not really what uh, what I'd be about. You're you're uh, you're playing Lego with with real world buildings and exactly and, uh, yeah yeah. I you know I always come back to that. Like if you do what's what's enjoyable, like why would you want to stop? You know retirement why would you retire if you were doing what you loved your whole life that's just the thing yeah it's the ability the ability to choose right and and i think we probably have that in common like i like to create i like to to build things whether it be my portfolio or renovate Mm -hmm. a house and turn it into something nice like for me like i like to tinker i like to um you know be productive that that's a a source of fulfillment for me i think there are a lot of um, notions in the world that we are vaguely familiar with, uh, certain lessons, certain beliefs. And mm-hmm. then if someone articulates it just right, that's when it sticks with you. Yeah. So one thing that wasn't articulated to me in just a few words until uh, years later was that it's naturally fulfilling to be good at something. So I'm passionate about real estate, fortunately, but there's something fulfilling about just the component of being able to do it successfully, to get those those high returns to, yeah. um, you know, anyone you, you associate with in your business from your maintenance people to everyone else, you're lifting those people up, you're helping everyone do well. It's just a naturally fulfilling thing to do. I, I agree with you. If you're good at it, something for some reason... It's this uh, internal validation. It is. Uh, exactly. Although that's probably maybe not the most healthy thing. If you ever screw up at it, you're like, oh, <laughs> now I'm worthless. That's the downside. <laughs> that's Yeah. I think I think a lot of us would feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Everyone has their own philosophy, right? You know, yes. you kind of you come you grow up and one day you just realize like for me, it's just like, you know, enjoying every single day. Like mm-hmm. that's I think that's like a big source of the moment. Just that satisfaction and knowing that I can whether, you know, even though that's has nothing to do with what I accomplished. But in those little micro instances, when I create something, I'm like, that's cool. Even if yeah. it's not perfect, if it's not the best. It's still cool. I made that or I made it work. So, you know, that was part of the reason I play music. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoy doing these podcasts, you know, and get to create something. Um, you know, it might not be the best podcast ever, but I'm working on it. Yeah, close, <laughs> close. <laughs> not there yet. Yeah. yeah, something to strive towards. Okay, so being where you are, obviously, as so many people would would envy that position and want to know, what would you recommend for them today? Like, are you looking still to buy in Owen Sound, or are you have you expanded your area? Uh, what's next? So as 
as I start a second hub, and it would be one additional hub, I would not just go crazy all over Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, wherever we decide that's going to be, it's going to be very purposeful. Um, so it won't be one property in a new location. It'll be one and then another and another. Um, mm-hmm. We're not necessarily done with Owen Sound. We're I'm, I'm quite happy there. I'm happy with the returns. It just comes down to the opportunities and and when we decide to actually create that second hub and then build our internal infrastructure in that second location as well. And what's your criteria for that that second hub? Well, I I've always been a a cash flow investor and a high cap rate investor, so perhaps we're going to focus a little more on appreciation. Try to um, you know we have our are one market right now that's a smaller community where things are um, maybe there are a few more risks that we have to uh, to manage, um, mm-hmm. maybe you know lower quality buildings, so on, a little more management heavy. So I might move into a location where we're expecting more appreciation, expecting less cash, expecting uh, higher quality tenants and less property management, but mm-hmm. we'll have to see. I was going to say, if you want to invest down in this area, you're going to have to focus more on the appreciation and less on the cash flow. <laughs> That's the thing. Yes. Yeah. Cash flow has become a little bit more of a unicorn these days, but mm-hmm. um, I am confident that's going to come around. And one thing I see is that the properties that, and as you know, the properties I bought last year, you know, three years before, when you re-rent them, they're renting out for quite a bit more. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we all go back to the bank and refinance and buy more. And then we're like, ah, I wish that cash flowed more, but... Uh, I've seen, you know, growth in them, right? I had one student rental where I had it rented out for 3000 boosted it up to almost 3500 I just had a single family turnover. I had it rented out around 1350 Now it's rented out at uh, 1895 Wow. You know, those are big jumps. Huge jumps. Yeah. yeah. So, so it makes a big difference. And all of a sudden, as long as you hold these properties, that's possible. Yes. Hold them and be patient, right? Exactly. Uh, it's hard to screw it up as long as you do those two things. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, the thing. Um, it, you know, things will work out. So, so for me, I look at it right now and I'm like, man, I need to get going and get more because I keep seeing the market going up. I'm like, I, I want to be on the right side of this and know that I bought as many as I possibly could. For sure. Yeah. I, I know the feeling. I, yeah. yeah, it's tough because with every month that goes by, it's one more month since you've bought something. Right. And yeah. so, yeah, I, my whole career that's eaten at me, you know, when, yeah. when have I bought something? Like that? I, I, I'd feel a sense of relief closing on something just because I'd restart the yeah, clock. Yeah, you feel like you did something, you know? right? Yeah. feel yeah. like you did something. Yeah. And, and you know, it, that's the true no excuses moment. You know, I bought something. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's why I love getting around, you know, guys like yourself who are, who have done a lot of it and, uh, and can always, uh, you know, share some wisdom as to what you needed to do for a good kick in the butt. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. Uh, what's one thing you would recommend to somebody who uh, who has not yet started? I would say you've got to get, not to give a, a less than tangible answer, but you do have to get your mindset right. You have to decide that you're going to do it. Um, get your get your habits in place so that you automatically do the right things. So before I uh, really got my career moving, I would listen to the podcast. I'd understand what other people were doing. Mm-hmm. And there are little tells. You can you realize when you're on the right track. And it's important to look out for those tells and pat yourself on the back when you should. Um, I remember I was on the phone once with someone, um, kind of real estate related. And we just we got talking about different aspects of the market. And I I think I let it slip. I don't remember if I almost let it slip or if I did let it slip. I think I actually said to them, well, you know, I'm a commercial expert and it (laughs) slipped out. And I thought, you know, all I have is my house. I actually don't have any commercial property. I didn't mean to mislead this person. But what happened was I spent the whole day in commercial. I spent the whole month 
thinking about reading about i was yeah. in commercial real estate i just hadn't closed on anything you know That's and it okay. was you know again not that i wanted to mislead or act like i was bigger than i was but yeah. that was that was not intentional it just slipped out like of course i know what i'm doing yeah. because i was so invested in i was so into it so if yeah. if uh someone who's looking to get started it can just talk to the right people network go out to events mm-hmm. listen to podcasts you're going to start feeling the natural flow and that's when you're onto something right and and you never know that might be a deal like adam made happen right he found somebody got a vtb you get all you need to say yeah. you're a real estate investor is one property now you're a real yeah. estate property when adam had smart yeah. people around him yeah. right so he i mean yeah. we all we all probably have self-doubt somewhere it's not i'm not going to say yeah. that adam did or didn't but adam knew what he was doing mm-hmm. and even though he didn't have a huge track record of previous purchases he had people yeah. around him and he just uh, he just moved forward purposefully yeah and for anyone curious i think that's episode 21 if you want to check out adam's episode tell a story it's, it's really cool you know a guy that you know started from a position of you know not being in a great financial position and, and really turned it on exactly surrounded himself right that key thing getting his mind set right getting around people i I love that advice and i think that is the most critical part yeah Uh, surround yourself and get your mindset right yeah um what's one thing you would tell people not to do hmm that's that's trickier i mean overpay is the easy answer Mm -hmm. um i would say people say you've got to get uncomfortable Mm-hmm. And that's that's more or less correct. You have to you have to get outside your comfort zone in order to grow. Um, don't be reckless, though. I I think it's important yeah. to to bite off sizable chunks. And you know, part of the reason I got into real estate was because I, as I mentioned earlier, I had a consulting business and I was in uh, tech and a few other things, advertising, and just a lot of the projects had short lives. I'd work really hard on something and it would die after a year. It's like, great, that then income was temporary and now it's gone. Yeah. Or you'd lose a client or uh, one of my clients had financial trouble. They got, they had $14 million in VC funding and then uh, they blew most of it and then they didn't want to pay me anymore. <laughs> so I, I just got tired of that, right? And I thought everything I do I want to be able to rely on after the fact. Back to that yeah. residual income. I want to do it and get it done, profit continually, and then repeat. Yeah. That's, so that's what I love about real estate, right? It's not going anywhere. Exactly. You can touch it unless it burns yeah. down, but then you got insurance. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so it's so not going to fire you. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. So, in terms yeah. of what not to do, I would just yeah. say don't look at one deal as the be all or end all and, and don't let that induce you to do something that you know better than to do. So don't, don't get yeah. into the wrong deal. Um, whatever you're doing, get comfortable with it and plan to do it again and yeah. again and again. So don't be emotional about it. Stick to the process. If you stick had a process, process, you have criteria, stick to it. Don't, don't force a deal to work. Exactly. Yeah. That's some good advice for sure. Um, okay. So John, if people wanted to reach out to you and connect with you, learn more about what you do, what's the best way for them to do that? The best place right now is Instagram. Okay. So my handle is John Kepler, no okay. H, just J-O-N-K-E-P-L-E-R. Okay. I'll put that in the, the show notes for uh, for everyone. Excellent. Uh, so they can connect with you. And and I'm not overloaded with DMs yet on Instagram. So uh, well, now's the time. <laughs> <laughs> now's the time. Exactly. But yeah. I, I, I don't sell training. I, um, I do try to get back to people on DMs. And if people have mm-hmm. short questions here and there, I try to answer them um, yeah. just to, to be kind and you know, help out the people who uh, who reach out to me and follow me yeah i do the same thing by the way so if people want to reach out to me i can't always pr- promise a speedy response but i'll do my best um and uh my my response usually uh when people ask for a call is come on out to the meetup you can you know right talk to me for as long as i'm there that's the easiest way for me to batch that time right. because i do get quite a few of those requests too which i'm sure you will as 
uh, as well. Actually, speaking of that, maybe one pro tip. I rarely talk on the phone anymore. So it's, yeah. it's all text and email and DMs, yeah. of course. Uh, so when someone asks for a call, I, I usually say, well, I, I don't, I don't do calls with other people. I don't, <laughs> I, don't I, I almost never do calls yeah. for any reason. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, um, you know, the way it's getting now, my typical response is like, you know, mindset's got to get right. I think the podcast is a great way, which I love referring people back, you know, Hey Andrew, like, how'd you get started? I'm like, great question. Have you listened to episode one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, which, you know, some people just found me and, and, uh, which I like is it kind of answers some questions uh, there. Uh, it's not that I don't want to talk to everyone, but you know, you get busier and busier as as you do more of this kind of thing. So, of course. anyways, um, okay. So, John, uh, a couple more things about you, just to get to know you um, outside of all this real estate stuff. What's your hobby? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, there's no standard answer, really. I um, almost everything I do is work related. There are things I enjoy that are. I'd say perhaps work adjacent. So um, I, I enjoy, uh, I, I wear custom made suits. I enjoy my clothing. I've never seen I, you not wearing a suit. That's that's true. You haven't, you haven't. Well, pajamas. I don't have suit pajamas. People you need to get suit, suit pajamas. pajamas. Yeah. The Bernie Stinson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's tough to say because really almost everything I do is work related. I do enjoy traveling. Um, you know, like many other people, I enjoy good food. Um, just trying to enjoy myself and relax a little bit in my downtime, but, uh, um, always kind of with work nearby as well. Yeah. Well, when works your play, I guess that kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's your, uh, your dream vacation destination? Hmm. I don't know if I had have one that I haven't been to yet. Um, Tough to say what my favorite is. You know, I'm going to do a lot more Europe in the future. I just, yeah. I can never get enough of Europe. So we'll just try, try numerous uh, European cities until I get tired. Um, I, I've, Brazil has been one of my favorites so far, but I feel like I'm about to have more great experiences in Europe than anywhere else. I, I've been curious about Brazil, but also a little scared because I've heard some, some scary stories uh, about tourists in Brazil. Mm -hmm. uh, Nothing bad has ever happened yeah. to me. So that allows me to be overly confident. <laughs> Yeah, I love that philosophy. Well, nothing bad has ever happened to me. Yeah. I don't think my wife will uh, will uh, go with that philosophy. <laughs> no, not necessarily. <laughs> John said it's okay. <laughs> it was fine for John. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, John, um, I really appreciate you coming on. I think that we uh, we tackled a lot of good stuff, and I know we could talk for hours. So uh, of course, we'll uh, we'll definitely have to do this again sometime. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, any questions for me before we go? No, this has been excellent. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thanks again. Well, we'll see you on the next one. All right, you too.